Welcome to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, my name is Andres. In this episode, Dispatches from Zapatista Territory, we speak with two of our fellow co-producers about their recent trip to the autonomous Zapatista communities in the highlands of the Mexican Southeast. For more than 24 years, the Zapatistas have inspired countless struggles across the globe to build a world in which many worlds fit. While the Zapatistas are not explicitly penal abolitionists, we reflect on how the Zapatista construction of autonomy may help us reimagine the challenges and possibilities we face as abolitionists. But first, here's Keith Sayed with some news you may have missed. Thousands of inmates in Florida across eight prisons have been involved with a statewide prison strike, which started on MLK Day. The strike, which has been dubbed Operation Push, was called by inmates demanding fair wages, fair pricing of commissary goods, and the restoration of parole. Many Florida inmates do not get paid wages for their labor. Instead, Florida prisons can deduct time from inmates' sentences for their labor, a practice often open to manipulation and abuse by prison officials. In the two weeks prior to Operation Push's launch, several organizers on the inside were thrown into solitary confinement. The Florida Department of Corrections has denied that any strike is taking place, but several organizations and media outlets have confirmed ongoing uprising. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia has dropped charges for 129 anti-fascist protesters who protested the presidential inauguration of Donald Trump on January 20, 2017. This follows the acquittal of the first six J-20 defendants in December, all of whom were facing decades in prison for defying the Trump administration. There are still 59 defendants facing significant time in connection with the J-20 protests. On January 17th, a trans inmate in an English prison went on hunger strike to protest the Ministry of Justice's refusal to recognize her gender. Mary Dean, who is held in the all-male HMP Preston prison in Lancashire, England, wrote a letter to the outside describing her imprisonment as a nightmare and that she would rather die than be denied her gender. Mary Dean's hunger strike follows the suicides of at least three trans women in male prisons in England this year. On February 4th, after 10 months of imprisonment for killing her abusive father in self-defense, 16-year-old Brescia Meadows from Ohio has been released. Meadows has been incarcerated and institutionalized since she was 14 years old. The release of Meadows, who took a plea deal to shorten her sentence, makes her exceptional in the white supremacist patriarchal system that regularly criminalizes women of color for acts of self-defense. Check out our April 2017 interview with Miriam Kaba on Brush's struggle and the campaign to free her at our website, www.rustbellradio.org. I'm David Langstaff, here with co-producers Andres, Catalina Rios, and Keith Syed, and today we're going to be in conversation with our fellow co-producers, Alejo Stark and A. Maria. So Alejo and A. Maria, the two of you just returned from the second Zapatista Conciencias for Humanity in Chiapas, Mexico. Before we get into some of the details of your experience, can you tell us briefly who are the Zapatistas and why should their history and legacy be important for those of us who are struggling for abolition or who are variously situated in struggles against what the Zapatistas refer to as the capitalist hydra? Yeah, I mean, I think people think of the Zapatistas particularly as being very influential in the 90s. And I think there's a sense in which contemporary movements perhaps are not as connected to the Zapatistas. So I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're doing this talk, first of all. So the basic timeline uh, is in 1994, in the wake of the 
North American Free Trade Agreement, the Zapatistas, which are a very heterogeneous group of particularly indigenous people in the southern state of Chiapas in Mexico, with different Mayan ethnicities, Sotil, Zetal, and others, sort of emerged in the public sphere by in a very sort of unpredictable way. On January 1st, 1994, they attacked and took over three or more cities in Chiapas, one of which is San Cristóbal de las Casas and also Ocosingo, and in the process declared war on the Mexican states in what later became known as the first declaration of the Lacandon jungle. The group actually emerged in the mid-80s, in 1984. It was a very small group of about 10 or so, half indigenous, half mestizos, and then the composition changed. Of folks that literally went into the jungle and sort of the continuity of the Latin American guerrilla movements of the 60s and 70s tried to basically start a revolution in the state of Chiapas. And then very quickly, these revolutionaries who literally <laughs> thought of themselves as Marxist-Leninists had to come to terms with the very different reality of the mostly indigenous and very different conditions that perhaps they were used to. Because they're coming a lot of this from the student movement as well in the 60s and 70s. So they had to shift the whole paradigm, so to speak. They were supported by the indigenous communities and slowly began to grow, mostly in the wake of what was sort of a land grab in the 80s and some of the shifts in the Mexican constitution around the Hido Camino land structure and so on. So that's, I think, one of the preconditions of the uprising, but also as a first declaration of the Lacandon jungle states, you know, it's about democracy, education, and healthcare. In some ways, we can even say self-determination, right? So it is both a fight against the capitalist hydra and hundreds and hundreds of years of colonization. And this is the kind of early history. The Mexican state tries to <laughs> claim that the Isolan is dead, right? It's no longer around. And I think in some ways we have forgotten about it. I mean, the anti-globalization movement was very much inspired by the Zapatistas, but there's a way in which we have to recover that. And I think the important part here is to mark some of the shifts in the wake of the 2006, what became the other campaign, around that same time, the good government councils tried to create a separation between the army organization to build autonomy. So there's a shift there from the intensification of the war in 1997, 1998, 1999, in the mid to early 2000s towards building autonomy, building autonomous schools, building autonomous hospitals, and coordinating also production of coffee and corn as well. So it's important to also keep that in mind. The support bases and the army have also evolved right over over the 20 plus years. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get more into some of the trajectory of the Zapatistas and of Zapatismo and resist this narrative that neither are any longer relevant to contemporary struggle. But can you begin by telling us a little bit more specifically about the conciencias from which the two of you just returned? Yeah, the conciencia. So I guess technically I'm an astrophysicist. You know, I just finished my doctorate. And so I was invited last year to go to the first encounter of basically scientists and Zapatistas, December 2016 and December 2017. What's important to highlight about this is the Zapatistas have now also created a generation of kids that grew up under Zapatista autonomy. And so it is those kids, right? It's not coming from the high command. Those kids that are asking and are in some ways also uh, wanting to have more science education in the autonomous schools. And I think part of the conciencia is what they try to do was both bring in scientists, like literally brought together dozens, like 50 plus scientists from all over the world to talk about the ways in which capitalism and the capitalist hydra and what it's, its relationship to science and technology, which sometimes are mixed up, right? You don't want to compete with science with technology. What is the function of science in society today? Right? How does it produce and reproduce the capitalist hydra 
and racial domination of all other forms. So that was one of the questions. But also the other thing we were asked to do is to develop classes and develop ways of engaging either through workshops or other things in Zapatista territory in particular, which as of today is kind of in, on, on standby. But I think the Zapatista comrades are really wanting to emphasize that we need science and we need the arts as well if we're going to transform the world. So both of you in your own ways have been deeply influenced by the Zapatistas in the course of your time doing work with radical left movements, and you've both traveled to Zapatista territory before. So why and how have the Zapatistas been important to your own political development, to your participation in various movements for radical or revolutionary social transformation? So I first encountered Zapatismo as a teenager in the early 2000s and understood it at that time because of the educational context that I was in, in the series of rebellions that have happened in Mexico over the last 500 plus years. It wasn't until working in a collective of other Chicanos and working with high schoolers that I came to both study the communiques collectively with people and within Chicano youth organizing, came to understand that the EZLN was impactful for all of us and really helped to reframe some of the questions that we had in relation to radical organizing and movements for autonomy that were happening. One of the important things in our process of understanding the world comes about through the language that the EZLN has built over decades for how we understand this moment in relation to both capitalism and also colonialism in the Americas. I feel like thinking back on it, it's almost sort of always been there in some ways, you know. But I think for me, it really kind of emerged as something I related to really just in the past two years. I mean, I was undocumented most of my time in living in the U.S. And though that was in the background, it's been very influential since then because it's a movement that has been able to outlive repeated attacks over the past two plus decades, which is obviously not only inspiring because, as we have seen, particularly in America in the past decade, many social movements sort of coming and going, so to speak. It's inspiring to be there just last year or this past New Year's Eve. For them, New Year's Eve is not just uh, the New Year's Eve, but it's the celebration of the uprising. And so being there and seeing what they call autonomous organization, literally seeing bands of Zapatistas playing corridos type of music, then the kids dancing. It's another world. When they talk about making a world in which many wor worlds are possible, I'm not trying to be rosy. I mean, the situation is quite difficult there, right? But it's inspiring that they've been able to make a crack in the wall, so to speak. That's a metaphor they use. Even though life is hard, right? I mean, life is not easy in Zapatistas territory, particularly in the past years, and just the constant harassment by state and paramilitary forces is a way in which the persistence and the continued emphasis on creating spaces of encounters, like the Conciencias, I think, teaches us in relation to abolition, you know, how to create those spaces of encounters, right? How, to, how do we think about solidarity and, and struggling beyond perhaps the usual organizational forms to me, the Sabbatismo re represents that. Not only the wish of another world, but the making of it in the everyday, as slowly as and as, as painstakingly it might be. The metaphor of, of the caracol, of the snail, five autonomous territories are called caracoles, right, snails. So this, this kind of slowly building another world, to me, is, is something that's very inspiring, I think, particularly in a moment in which we find ourselves having to react to things so often, particularly in the past two years. The struggle will have to be thought in the long term insofar as we want to build something and we're not just reacting to things, right? So to me, it is, it is key in thinking about the long-term struggle. Just shifting a little bit, the period commonly referred to by critics as neoliberalism has coincided with a massive expansion of the carceral state particularly in the U.S., but increasingly globally. 
What relationship do you see, if any, between the exploitation, expulsion, and low-intensity warfare to which poor, rural, largely indigenous people that comprise the Zapatistas, and for example, the organized abandonment and organized violence, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it, that has been the fate of people of color and working-class communities along the Rust Belt? It's interesting, one of the differences in Chiapas, in terms of the state, it wasn't even a question of abandonment. The state didn't extend in certain ways and forms. And so one of the successes of the Zapatistas was, for instance, building autonomous schools where people could have access to education or building access to healthcare. Similar to the way that the Panthers Free Lunch Program opened up these spaces that both addressed the needs that people were facing, and then the state moved in to displace those radical sites of autonomous movement and growth. That's also been happening in Chiapas by building schools and clinics where they never would have before and hadn't for decades. The building and expansion of roads in order to bring in the military. So for instance, in 94, one of the reasons that the bombings were so severe is that the army just couldn't mobilize ground forces in the ways that they would be able to now. Just to add also to what Imaria was saying, the Zapatistas also have their own conception of this period. They call it the Fourth World War. So the first and second we maybe know about, and then the third is the Cold War. And the Fourth World War is what you call earlier on neoliberal globalization, right? And so as Maria just mentioned, part of this implies both low-intensity warfare through building state schools and so on, but also because of the moment in which we're in, in the history of capital and what capitalism needs to reproduce itself, they characterize the situation as there being a moment of either elimination or, you know, incarceration, right? So there's a, you can call it a surplus population, people that are not needed for the needs of capital that have to be dealt with in some way or another. Obviously, it's easier to deal with people that are racialized, that are less than. And so what they see as being, for instance, the drug war in post-2006 in Mexico, as well as just recently in Mexico, they also passed an internal security law that basically allows the military to operate as police, more or less, with this drug war that has killed tens of thousands of people. As Don Paley calls it in her book, it's drug war capitalism. So Zapatistas call this the fourth world war. It is a war of elimination and incarceration, which I think has resonances also with the Rust Belt, that the prison emerges in the wake of not only the rebellions in the Rust Belt, but also in the wake of processes of automation and also processes of removing workers from very concentrated sites like the River Rouge plants in Detroit and other places. We'll return to the conversation after listening to part of a corrido by the Zapatista band Originales de San Andres. Partidista Tenían chivos y vacas Ordenados sus riquezas De repente aparece La hidra sin llenadera Al bostezar esa hidra Suelta un venenoso Destruye la humanidad, la gente con rabia ataca, violento y desordenado. Una mujer aparece, 500 años de historia, un cabal conocimiento, cómo derrotar la hidra, cortar la cabeza madre, incinerar este monstruo. 
That was La Hydra Capitalista, or The Capitalist Hydra, by the Originales de San Andrés, a Zapatista corrido band from the highlands of Chiapas. The Hydra is a metaphor the Zapatistas use to describe the many-headed monster that is racial capitalism. Because as we know, even if we cut off one of its heads, capital regenerates another. Staying with this thread about the specific historical moment in which the Zapatistas emerge, although the Zapatistas certainly understand their struggle as resisting a war that goes back half a millennia, they also emerge on the world stage as an insurgent force at precisely the same moment when the ruling classes, particularly in the global north, were loudly celebrating the so-called end of history. Uh, that is to say, the supposedly definitive triumph of racial capitalism over all other possible or all other existing social formations and forms of life. So how did the Zapatista rebellion instantiate and contribute to a renewal of the radical imagination against and beyond racial capitalist triumphalism? How might we think about the fact that another moment in the renewal of the radical imagination, namely that which was given through a new language and politics of abolition, occurred in the U.S. just a few years after the Zapatista rebellion of the mid-90s? I mean, to answer the second part of the question, the EZLN was hugely impactful throughout the Americas, in part because of how they decided to work in relation to media and also through the ways that they imagined resistance. So, for instance, the phrase one no many yeses or a world in which many worlds fit. It's a way for people to understand local struggles and regional struggles as all being connected. And I think also in relation to the media work that they did, which led the now dead Subcomandante Marcos calling essentially for the creation of indie media to support our movements in the one no throughout the Americas and globally was hugely impactful. I think the, the ways in which it intervenes at a key moment and disrupts this narrative of the end of history, I think is also about not only just media, but also with the encuentros that they create. It's in some ways not anti-globalization, but it is an alternative globalization, right? So there's not a negation of a world in which many worlds fits, but rather a way of encountering creating networks of solidarity and struggle that were deeply needed in a moment in which, as you said, the ideologues of capital had pronounced that liberalism and capitalism had won from now on. It's curious to think the relation to abolition also because maybe in those years people are trying to find a, a way out, a crack in the wall, so to speak. And even today, I think we need to be able to imagine sort of a way out. And what's so inspiring, I think, about Zapatistas is precisely they have a very, I think, anomalous way of relating to and disrupting the normative and the expected that is common sense, so to speak. And I think abolition tries to do the same thing, is precisely disrupt the common sense of the carceral and prisons and what we take to be just normal, some would say, hegemony, right? Just the common sense ways in which we understand punishment and discipline and justice. And so I think there's a direct connection for me there in precisely trying to posit that another world is possible and needed and trying to work in the long term in very slow ways to chip away at those walls continuously. Yeah, and like a line in the call for the Festival of Dignified Rage that took place in Chiapas and Mexico City in 2008, they say that if the world does not have a place for us, then another world must be made. In these spaces of encuentro, of encountering that are created where people attend globally, but especially from Latin America, they are spaces of imagining and creation and affirming that we are still here and we're still fighting. 
Yeah, and I'm struck by the, the way that those things are always linked for the Zapatistas, the imagination of what hasn't previously been possible to imagine and the creative gathering that's embodied in the encuentros. But at the same time, understanding the practice of imagining and enacting and inhabiting other worlds, being grounded in a 500-year-long indigenous struggle to, to protect and preserve the other worlds that have already been here, that are already here with us. Capitalism, you know, you cut one head and another one goes back. So it's constantly shifting and it's a dynamic thing. So it, sh it has shifted in these five, past 500 years. And so I think one thing we have to learn is, and I think what they're implicitly telling us is that the kind of protest politics that maybe we're very much used to in the U.S. is dead. You know, that that doesn't work. In a, in a situation in which what we're facing is the Fourth World War, the only thing which we can su survive the storm, we can survive the catastrophe that capitalism has put us through, is to build our own ship, to build our own autonomy, to build our own world. I'm not saying that blockades and sort of disruptions are necessarily not also about building another world, but I do think that in the U.S. we have a sense of protest is kind of what we do and then we just sort of go back to, you know, living as wage workers, you know, whatever our life is. And I think we have to go back to what Maria was saying before is the struggles against the state. I mean, it's, it's a, we're living in a very different place too. So we have to consider the, the very different material conditions of both the state in the United States as opposed to Mexico. I mean, the strength of the, I mean, the military power of the state, but also the insertion and presence of the state, as well as previous forms of organization that have existed and coexisted for many years in Chiapas that also made Zapatismo possible, right? So the Camino land holding, uh, which I think in relation to the U.S. has a different history. I'm not saying it's not there, but has a different history. So when we're thinking about what we can learn, we also have to be very careful in thinking about the specificities of the U.S. context in relation to the southern Mexico context. I've been reading the book Compañeras, Zapatista Women's Stories. Can you describe your experience of the impacts you see women making in the movement for liberation in the Zapatista movement? How have you seen them evolving and what can we learn from them? Zapatismo has been really strongly influenced by the women's struggle from the beginning. They often talk about the struggle within the struggle to address the ways that gender violence became normalized, both under the Mexican state and the introduction of different forms of not even wage labor, but essentially servitude in Mexico, especially in rural Mexico. I think in learning from the struggles within the struggle, it's important just to take very seriously that this work needs to be happening simultaneous to all of the other battles that we're fighting. One of the important things that came out of calls from women is the banning of alcohol in Caracoles as a way of both dealing with security risks, but first and foremost, as a way of tackling domestic violence. So that's a really important part that comes out of the Revolutionary Women's Law, specifically to address domestic violence that was happening. Some of the other elements of the EZLN's women's revolutionary law are also that women have the right to education, women have the right to choose their partner and aren't obligated to enter into marriage, that women have the right to participate in matters of the community, that women have the right to work and receive a just salary, and that women have the right to participate in the revolutionary struggle in any way that their desire and capacity determine. Just to add to what A. Maria was saying, I think part of the book, which people should read, called Compañeras, that you mentioned, sort of tells the story also of how even prior to the 1994 uprising, the women's revolutionary law sort of asked for and called for autonomy of the women even within the movement. 
So that has meant creating cooperatives, like specific women-led, women-only cooperatives, where women felt comfortable working together and organizing together to also be economically autonomous so they can make their own decisions. But at the same time, the movement has also been critiqued from without. So there's been a lot of back and forth between certain feminist movements saying, you know, you haven't done enough in this regard. And the Jalan responding with saying, well, the women here will take their own pace. So I think we have to be very careful at the final evening of Conciencias this year, the Zapatista women invokes the convocation of the first international gathering of politics, art, sports, and culture for women in struggle that is going to be happening in March, coinciding with International Women's Day, in which Zapatista women and women of the world will continue to encounter one another and be in dialogue. For instance, in order to make this materially possible, men are invited if they are accompanying and supporting women who will be engaging in the encounter. So men are invited if they want to come and be available for childcare or cleaning and cooking. And is there anything else that either of you would like to add, either about your experience with the Conciencias or your reflections on Zapatismo more generally? I mean, I would just add one last thing that I think the news haven't really made it here, but when we were there in December, about 5,000 indigenous people in uh, Chinalo and Chalchihuitan, which are two nearby cities to San Cristobal de las Casas, nearby to the Oventique Caracol, 5,000 indigenous people were displaced by paramilitary groups. I mean, and, and, these, and these paramilitary groups are in direct work with political parties. What that's meant is also not only the people's houses were shut up and people left, but because it's in the highlands of Chiapas, at least a dozen or so people have died, mostly children and elder people, because of the cold and lack of access to water and so on. So one thing for us to think about is, in the ways in which we are in solidarity with folks inside, what would it mean to continue to be in solidarity with the struggles in Mexico and beyond, right? I mean, there's been a lot of connections between Black Lives Matter and the 43 missing students from Ayotzinapa, and the Zapatistas themselves have sent coffee with the name Fuck Trump. And so the question is, how do we think about solidarity within abolition that extends beyond not only the walls and cages of the prison, but the walls and borders that bourgeois nationalism makes? Well, thanks so much for being in conversation with us today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hopefully it's a way to continue to think about Zapatismo and abolition moving forward as well for a world in which many worlds fit. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to past episodes on our website at www.rustbeltradio.org. This show was co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew. Andres, A. Maria, David Langstaff, Catalina Rios, Cape Syed, and Alejo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity. Thank you.